Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. But uh, so today, before we jump into the series next week, I wanted to share with you something that I've really been working on for years now. Um, the, these are, I'm, gonna, I'm calling them virtues, the virtues of the 6-8 family. So we have values as a church, and there, there's a little bit difference between a value and a virtue. You can value something in it and still not have it be a virtue. And I'm going to explain it here a little bit, but I, I gave you this handout because these are going to become more and more just a part of our language around here at 6-8 Church. These are seven H words. They all begin with H. The last one was really hard to find an H word, and you'll see what we came up with uh, to, to bring that to conclusion there. But um, they're all H words. They're all going to just be, hopefully become a part of our vernacular. And, and I want to start by going to 2 Peter Chapter 1, we've studied this passage before. We did a whole series on this passage years ago. That's available on our website if you'd like to go uh, listen to that again. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And we love that verse. I love that verse. We should love that verse. It's a great verse. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So through Christ, through the divine power of God, through Christ, through the cross, through the resurrection, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have his divine power giving us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That is a tremendous verse that we sometimes skip over because we're drawn to verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. But, but verse 4, I think, is equally as powerful because it says that we, through Christ and through the promises and through what God has given us, we get to participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where God created everything. He had a design in mind. Everything was perfect, just how he wanted it. He created man. And then in Genesis chapter 3, not very long after, man, instead of walking with God, chose to rebel against God and, and do their own thing. They wanted to be like God. And because of that, corruption entered the world. And now ever since and the whole human race has been corrupt by nature. 
But because of what Jesus Christ has done, when he came and he walked on this earth and he walked this amazing life and he gave us the gift of grace and then he gives us the gift of the resurrection, then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and his presence eternally in us, now we have the opportunity to escape that old corrupt nature which all of humanity is struggling under and now live in the divine nature. That is incredible news. That is nothing short of a miracle. So his divine power gives us the opportunity to participate in the divine nature. We get to participate in the divine. Verse 5. For this very reason... It's a transition phrase, it's, it's a phrase that Peter is using to connect what he has just said with what he's about to say. So because of what he has just said, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us every great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason... Because we get to, by his divine power, participate in the divine nature, for this very reason, make every effort. Oh, wait a second. I thought God just gave it to us. Uh, I, I, thought it was just, I thought it was just God gives us his power and we just don't even have to try. Well, God gives it to us and then we get the joy of learning how to live it out. Be sharing more on this on weeks to come, but I think so much of our Christian faith, which is trying to be kind of you know, robbed of us, is about struggle. It is about perseverance. It is about endurance. It is about the, just the simple act, not so much of, of winning, but of continuing to fight. It's, it's imagine a line, and we're going to use this illustration over and over and over again, but imagine a line, if you will, just kind of dividing this room, and, and on, on one side, you're facing God, and if you're on the other side of the line, you're facing sin. And so, so here on this side of the line, I'm looking towards God, and here on this side of the line, I'm looking towards sin. And so much, I think, of what God is doing in this life is he's asking us, which side of the line are you going to be standing on? Uh, are we going to be standing on the side of the line facing God with our backs towards sin? Or are we going to be standing on this side of, our, of the line with our backs towards God and facing sin? Are we facing God or are we facing sin? And so much of our daily life, if you were to draw that line out and plot every action on either side of that line, one dot on, on this side when you're facing sin, and a dot on this side when you're facing God, and a dot on this side when you choose sin, a dot on this side when you choose God, it's about getting the dots to stop coming on this side and start to landing more and more on this side. It's that, that constant balance and that struggle of getting, not a balance at all, actually, it's not even remotely close to a balance. It was a really bad word getting all of the dots from that side back over onto this side so that the entirety of our lives is spent on this side of the line looking at God and away from sin. 
So yes, God gives us his divine power. We have everything we need to stand on this side of the line. We have everything we need right now to resist sin and the temptation that comes with being in a corrupted planet and a corrupted earth and corrupted people and corrupted humanity. We have everything we need to do it. But we have to make the effort. And so Peter, one of Jesus's disciples, the one on whom Jesus said he would build the church, the one who preached the first sermon where 3,000 people came to Christ, the one who denied him and then was reinstated. Peter is making this argument. He says, you have the power, but for this reason, because you have the power, make every effort. And then he says, to add to your faith goodness. Isn't it just about faith? Isn't Christianity all about faith? Well, faith is the starting point. Faith is where we begin, but faith is just the starting line, and there's an entire race out in front of us that I think a lot of Christians miss out on. This is the huge problem I'm kind of spending my life as the pastor of this church fighting against, is that there is, a, there is just a whole world of Christianity that has stopped at the starting line. That, that there are Christians all over the face of the earth who, who believe because they've said a prayer and now they're good, they have faith, they have everything they need, and then they spend none of the rest of their lives being conformed to the image of Christ, and the world now gets robbed of experiencing the presence of Christ because there aren't as many Christians who are living out their faith as they're supposed to be because we stop at the starting line. Peter, I think, makes it very clear. We... We need faith, everything begins with faith, but then we have to start adding to it. Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. So important to Peter that he said it again. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. I want to come back and focus in on one word. That's okay. It says, add to your faith goodness. Does anybody's translation say virtue? The actual Greek word is virtue. I'm not sure why the NIV translates it goodness. The NASB trans translates it as moral excellence. 
Does anyone's translation say virtue? What's that? What translation do you have? New King James. Okay, so the New King James says virtue. Okay. So the ESV, the, uh, the New King James, maybe the original King James, they say, add to your faith virtue. So I think one right here in this text, I think we have a good example of, of perhaps, and if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me on this, the difference between a value and a virtue. So a value can be almost anything. You can value almost anything and call it a value. You know, we have values uh, as a church. We value the unity of the body. That's a really high value for us. We, we consider very high on the scale the importance of unity and the fact that Jesus, Jesus prayed for unity. He was highly concerned with unity. In fact, I'm so, so pushed forward on unity that I think it's actually part of the gospel itself. The gospel story is about unity. And so, but you can value unity. You can value scripture. You can, you can value teamwork. You can, you can value, you know, a whole bunch of different things. But that doesn't mean that those values are necessarily actions. That doesn't mean that something you value is necessarily something you actually act out. And virtue is, is kind of a combination of both a value and an action. It's, it's something that, that you do because you are. Right? So add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith moral excellence, right? I am this person, so I do this thing. So moral excellence is not just holding to the value of honesty, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Moral excellence is not just holding to the value of fidelity in marriage. It's actually acting that out at the same time, right? That is moral excellence. That is what it means to be virtuous. I believe this, I hold this as a value, and I act it out. And at the same time, um, by contrast, if you value something, you actually, your behavior will, will look that way. And along those lines, I actually want to show a video about Bible reading. It's two minutes, and we, uh, we're doing a lot of Bible reading as a church, and I think this is a really incredible uh, statistic for you to think about as you think about whether or not you should read the Bible. Let's watch that video. Just reading, just reading the Bible four days a week. So that would be a great place to start becoming a virtuous person is just reading scripture. And it's impossible to interact with God's word and not be changed by it unless you're a non-believer. But if you're a believer following Jesus Christ and you have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you, God is going to shape your life when you spend time with him and his word. So add to your faith virtue. Now these virtues that I'm going to lay out. It's not a comprehensive list. Yeah. For a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue, goodness, moral excellence. Make every effort then to add to your faith, goodness, moral excellence, virtue. Now, when you look at these virtues by name, you're going to think, well, these aren't, these don't even feel biblical. These just feel like kind of general ideas, but we're going to, I think, make a, a case for them as we go through. 
The first two you've probably heard if you've been around any kind of business or corporate circles, hungry and humble. Humble and hungry are two kind of popular words that originated actually from a basketball team, a basketball player when they were recruiting players to their team and they wanted to become a, a championship team. And one of the players said, was interviewed and said, well, what are you looking for in people who are thinking about coming to join your team? And he said, we just want guys who are hungry and humble. And, uh, and then it kind of started to catch on, become more, more catch, catchy in the business world. And um, I think they're really good for us in what it is to be a part of our 6-8 family. So the first one is hungry. I have a hunger to become more like Christ. Another way to say that would be desire. I want, I strongly desire to become more like Christ. Hungry. Hunger in Scripture has everything to do with desire, and you'll see the contrast all throughout Scripture between people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like Jesus described, and those who are driven by their hungers. And this is, this is, I think, a big part of one of the, this is one of the reasons I started with this word, but it's a big part of coming on, that, on the right side of that line. Do we hunger, are we hunger and thirsty for God, or are we hungry and thirsty for sin and the things of this life? And you've heard us say, I can't want it bad enough for you. That, that that's, this seems to be one of the things that is un, uh, that we cannot fix in other people. I've done a lot of research over the past several years about how to help people change and transform and, and become the people that they really would like to become. And, and in all of my reading and all of my study, this seems to be kind of the, uh, the holy grail of transformation, of life change, is that how do you help somebody want to change? And this seems to be the thing that you can't affect. They have to want it. I can't want it bad enough for you. I, I can't want you, you know, to read your Bible bad enough for you to actually read your Bible. You have to want it. You have to have a desire for it. You have to see it through the lens of God wants to know me and wants me to know him. And it's through scripture that I get to know him. And I want to know him and be known by him. So I read scripture. But I can't want it bad enough for you. Do you want to grow? Do you want to become more like Christ? Do, do you want to be less like Adam and more like Christ? It sounds like this. I've, I've tried to include some sounds like, and the reason I'm including it, not only for us to identify it and encourage it here among our body, but I hope we do that. That, that when we hear somebody say, I, I, I want to grow, I really want to grow, that we would come alongside them and say, that's great. Good job. That's, that's a huge part of it, just, just the wanting of it, the desire of it. When we hear these, that we affirm them. But at the same time, that we would also begin to recognize them in people who don't know Christ, people who are outside of this church and outside of the faith. That we would hear them say, oh, I just, I really would like to, I want to know more about God. I, I, I feel like there's something there and I'm be, being drawn towards something. And if you start to hear somebody saying that they want to know more like what it is to be like Christ, what it is to be a Christian, or they want to know God, or, you know, they want these things, then it would be a good time to start spending more time in that relationship. Key support scripture is Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
I've also included some contrast scriptures, which so hopefully show the opposite side of the virtue. So we have the positive side, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and here's the contrast side. Sometimes it's harder to, to point it out as a contrast, but this is from Philippians chapter 3. It says, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, and here's the key phrase, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their God is their stomach, their, their desires of their life, the literal hunger and thirst of their life is for sin. They're standing on this side of the line with their back towards God, hunger and thirsting for the pleasures of this life. Their destination is destruction. Their mind is set on earthly things. So we want to be the people who are on this side of the line, hungry and thirsty for God himself. Second is humble. Are we humble? It's a big word for us in our church. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And a lot of times we'll say, are, are you walking with God? Or are you trying to make God walk with you? Walking humbly with God means that you're following him as he leads, not trying to force God to follow you where you want to go. More on that in the weeks to come. But humble is... I don't have all the answers, but I'm ready to learn. It's about we, not me. We'll get into that a little bit more here. Key quotes. I, I, I included these key quotes to try to help uh, bring the, the, the virtue to life in your mind a little bit more. That maybe you could, if, if my explanation of it doesn't help make sense, then maybe some of these others will help. C.S. Lewis said of humility that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So it's not belittling yourself and minimizing yourself, but it's just making yourself uh, less of the focus of your thoughts and of your life and of your attention and everything you do throughout any given day. And J.I. Packer, I posted this earlier on Workplace, he says, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. And this goes all the way back to the garden, because Adam and Eve wanted to know good and evil. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to become like God and know good and evil. So the only way to really start to embrace the divine nature like Peter is talking about is to humble ourselves, become teachable, and let God himself start to reveal his truth to us, the divine wisdom that stands in contrast to the wisdom of this age. It sounds like this. Christ must increase, I must decrease. That's John the Baptist. Nothing and no one is beneath me. Lead me. 
There is no one in society, there, there, is, there is nothing that God would ask me to do that is beneath me. There is, there is nothing that I am too good for. So I will do whatever God gives me to do. I'll follow wherever God leads me, lead me, and I will follow. A key support scripture is one of my favorites, quote from all the time. Philippians chapter 2, some uh, hand-selected passages out of there. Go read the whole thing if you'd like, 2, 1 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's the contrast. Selfish ambition stands on the wrong side of the line. Vain conceit is standing on the wrong side of the line. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Have the same mindset as Christ. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Are we humble? Are we teachable? Are we in a position for God to teach us or are we constantly going to scripture to support our already preconceived, our preconceived notions and beliefs about God? Or do we go to God with humility and say, teach me, I want to be taught by you, I want to know you, I want you to share with me who you are. Contrast scripture would be James 4, 6, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Which side of the line are we on? Are we on the proud side or are we on the humble side? So we want to be hungry. We want to be humble. The third one is honorable. By the way, if you only remember two, remember those first two. I think a lot of those, everything else can probably come out of those in different ways. Number three is honorable. Honorable. I cannot do wrong and feel right. I do what I say I will do. So being honorable means I personally commit to live up to certain self-imposed expectations. I need no outside check or forces of control. I am honorable to the deepest parts of who I am. It sounds like this. If I say I will do it, it will get done. Out of my love for Christ and you, I can't not do it. I do what's right when no one is watching. So this speaks both to the commitments we make in our walk with Christ and following him. You know, integrity is who you are when no one is watching. If you are a person of high integrity, then when no one is watching, you will act the right way. If you are a person of low integrity, when, you're, when no one is watching, you will not act the right way. So this has to do with integrity. Uh, I, I cannot do wrong and feel right about it. I cannot feel right about doing wrong things. I cannot justify my wrong actions. When I do wrong, I feel wrong about it because I know that's not who I am, because that is not a part of the divine nature, and God has brought me over to this side of the line, and so I cannot feel right about doing things that belong on the other side of the line because that is not who I am. I am not that person. God has made me somebody different, so I cannot feel okay about doing those things. 
And so out of my love for Christ, I'm going to stand on the right side of the line. But it also comes to our relationships with one another. Honor is, is I am honorable when I follow through, when, when I do what I say I will do. If I'm an honorable person, that means that I've committed to something and you can trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to do that. that if I say I'm going to pray for you, I will pray for you. If I say that, I, that I'm going to support you in this way or that I'm going to do this for our body or for your family or whatever it is, there shouldn't be concern, are they going to follow through with that? It's just, I'm honorable, I do what I say I will do. A lot of verses we could come to, to to this one that's not included would be where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You should be so honorable as a person that your yes carries so much weight, you know it's going to get done because that's who you are. Here's a key support scripture from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. He's talking about an offering that he was expecting to receive from this church. He says, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Desire, key word there, hunger, right? You were the first to have a hunger, a desire to do so. You wanted to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Let me read the contrast scriptures and then I'll try to draw this out a little bit. Proverbs 25, 14 says, a person who promises a gift but doesn't give it is like clouds and wind that bring no rain. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 6, 4 and 6 says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Tying back into what Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to say yes to something, be sure that what you say yes to is something you will actually follow through with. Right? I don't think Paul, when he's talking about this offering, I don't think he's, I don't think he's making this argument to them because he's, you know, he's, he wants their money. I don't think it's because he's greedy. I think it's because they made a promise that they were going to provide this offering for him. They were going to provide these funds for him. And then he now, as a, a minister of the gospel, a missionary going out and traveling around the world, is building his ministry around the, the commitment that the Corinthians made. And now they have not followed through with it, and he's left out here hanging. It's not so much that he's greedy, but it's, hey, you said you were going to do this, so do it finish the work. That's what it means to be honorable. If you say you are going to do something, then being honorable is you finish the work. 
that it would be better to not make that vow, to not say you're going to do something. Jesus, remember, he sets the bar really high with with everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, And him saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, was actually him setting the bar really high. It's your yes is a vow. Remember, you know, we've kind of, we've lost this now because we live in a contractual society. We don't really do this anymore, but, but uh, you would, you know, have a handshake. You wouldn't have to sign on a dotted line. You would just shake hands and say, I'll do it. And that meant something. Most states have actually taken that out of the law altogether. It doesn't even mean anything in most states anymore. But are you the kind of the person that would, when you say yes, others know it will be done? Are you the kind of person that say, when you're going to live up to this standard, whatever that might be, it will be who you are? So hungry, humble, honorable, number four is hopeful. This is one that I struggle with. I've been constantly working on this in my life over the last several years, to be a hopeful person. And I think it actually is a spiritual issue the more I study it. It's not just, oh, you just want to be a person that has a positive attitude and can speak positively and think positive thoughts. And, you know, and, and the contrast to that is realism. Like, you be positive, I'll be realistic, right? That quote from Home Alone that's lived on in infamy ever since that movie. Like, you be positive, I'll, I'll be realistic. And we like to kind of walk around and, and, and kind of brag about the fact that we're, we're realistic, but being realistic, I think, actually neglects to bring in God's supernatural redemption that he's at work with right now in the world through all believers into the equation. Being realistic is looking at the corruption of the world and making our assessment on the broken and flawed corruption that we see and not the eternal, highly supernatural power of the redemption of God that God wants to bring in through his believers and conquer this other side of the line. And so being hopeful is not just, I want to be a positive person. It's actually choosing to look at the world through God's redemption that he has in mind and the work that he has in mind throughout all of eternity until he returns to constantly be pushing his goodness into active status. I choose to see God's active redemption at work in the world. Key quote, there's, it's Leon Brown. I don't know if this is the baseball player, Leon Brown, or the guy that was wrongfully held in prison for 30 years, Leon Brown. But either way, I think the quote still holds up. It says, life is a reflection of what you think. If your thoughts are negative, you will see the world that way. Being hopeful is looking at the world, as we've said, with, with hope, is to, to, to have hope is to look at your current situation, your current circumstance, through the lens of God's faithfulness in the past. And with God's faithfulness in our minds, and we put on our God's faithfulness glasses, and we look at the world, we can see that, yes, there's this whole corruptive layer, and there's all this stuff, but there's all this other supernatural layer of God's promises that Peter spoke of, his, his precious and very great promises that, that God wants to see brought to life in this world. And, and it's looking at it and saying, instead of dwelling on the negatives and the corruption, I'm going to look and see where God wants to start to plant 
seeds of redemption. And he wants to use us to plant those. So it sounds like this. I choose not to listen to the negativity around me. This is the air we breathe, especially this year with all that's going on in politics. Can read one news article and be overwhelmed with the negativity. I choose not to listen to it. I choose not to listen to the negativity all around me. I look for the ways God is at work in everything. Even in a divisive election year, I'm gonna look for the ways that God is at work in the tension. Key support scriptures, Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We as Christ followers are not supposed to be pessimistic and negative. We're supposed to be overflowing with hope because we know God's redemption is at work. In our lives, when we see the struggle, when we see the difficult things, when we're faced with circumstances that are challenging, we still are supposed to look at them through the lens of God's hope, Romans 8, 28, because we know that in all things, not just the things that we like and the things that we want, but in all things, in all circumstances, in all situations, we know that in all of these things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. So no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're dealing with, no matter how difficult things may get in life, we know that God is going to work them for the good because we've been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Then Hebrews 10, we've just covered this last fall. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly. Remember, we talked about having our hope anchored to Christ and, and that he, he took us into the harbor with him and our hope is now anchored safely in the harbor to Jesus Christ who's there performing his work on our behalf, interceding for us. And so our hope is anchored to the finished work of Jesus Christ, not to the shifting sands of society and culture and everything that's going on around us. We're not at the... At, at, at uh, whim and whatever's going to happen around us, we are securely anchored to Christ. Our hope is there, and so we hold unswervingly to that hope. By contrast, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Even if you take this at its most literal translation, this passage applies directly to every single person in this room. 
because he's talking about people, us who are Gentiles on the outside of the family of God, but through the work of what Jesus Christ has done, we were separate from Christ. We had no hope of coming into God's family or God's kingdom, but because of what Jesus Christ did, now we who were separate and excluded and kicked down on the outside of God's family have been brought in through the work of Jesus Christ. We were without hope, but now because of Christ, we have hope. So it's really important, I think, for followers of Jesus Christ to be hopeful. And what I hope will happen is that not only will we encourage one another in these, but that you will even have the courage to say to me and others of us that, you know, that kind of sounds a little bit pessimistic and negative. It kind of sounds like old David. Why don't you uh, rephrase that in a more hopeful way? Number five, helpful. Don't worry if you don't remember all these. These again will be, we'll come back to them over and over and over again. I don't wait for someone else to do what I see that needs to be done. Some key quotes are, God created me on purpose for a purpose. Napoleon Hill, I don't know who he is, but this quote is true, so we can take it for that. <laughs> you must get involved to have an impact. No one is impressed with the one lost record of the referee. I posted this quote on Workplace earlier, and then I read it again this morning when I was getting ready, and I remembered that I watched a little bit of the playoff games yesterday, and I thought, that's true. I didn't give any thought at all to the referees and if the, how many games they've ref because there's no such thing as being a winning ref. You have to be involved. You have to be in the game. Helpful. It sounds like this. I am not a casual observer. I am an active participant. I get involved. I do what needs to be done even when I don't enjoy it. <clears throat> I could easily get up on my soapbox right here, but I'm not going to for very long. <laughs> See, content. Um, I get that we want to do what we want to do. We want to do the things that we enjoy doing. And we as a church, we do do our best to help people find a place to serve, to help, that is in line with their strengths. That's why we've done so many strengths finders tests over the years. And if you haven't done one, you can talk to me after the service. We'll help you get started on that. That's why we've invested energy in learning the Enneagram and the different personality types and all of that stuff so that we can, as best we can, with our spiritual gifts and all of these things taken into consideration, be able to help you find a place to serve that best fits with how God designed you. But especially in a church that's small like ours, there are, and I think probably actually in any church that you could ever go to, there will be times where you get to do what you really enjoy. And 
you may not even know that you enjoy working with kids, but you're going to talk to April after the service because you just feel drawn by her statement that you think you might be compelled to help with the kids. Like the Holy Spirit is moving right now. I can feel it. Revival is about to happen in the kids' service. It's going to be uh, abundantly staffed. <clears throat> There will be hopefully a lot of times where we get to do what we really enjoy doing. But as with any family, which is what we are, there are also going to be times where we need to do things that we don't particularly care for. If I were to you know, break out my schedule and kind of go back over my last calendar year and all the things that I did, there are a lot of things that I enjoy doing. But there's a significant percentage of things that I don't enjoy doing. But I do them because they need to be done. And there are better examples of that here in this room than me. There are people who do what needs to be done regardless of how enjoyable it is to do them. But they do them because it needs to be done and that's what you do when you're in a family. So I don't wait for someone else to do what, it, what needs to be done. I, I do it when I see that it needs to be done. If there's a light bulb out, light bulbs are in the closet right around the corner from the, the water fountain. Feel free to go grab a light bulb if we have it and put it in. If anyone, if uh, the toilet, no, it's not about enjoying working on toilets. It's just, if, if you do enjoy it, that's great. But if you don't enjoy it, we have toilets that need to be fixed. And you know, we can help Russ and uh, some of the guys fix them. If the trash needs taken out, there's no one paid here to take out the trash. So we take out the trash. If there's a piece of trash on the floor, we don't wait for Jim to come behind you and sweep it up. We're going to bend over ourselves. Pick it up. Throw it away. I don't wait for someone else to do what I see that needs to be done. I'm a helpful person. Key scriptures. God is not unjust. You will not forget your work and the love you have shown, the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Hebrews 6.10. When we help one another, when we help God's people, we're helping God himself. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. 1 Peter 3.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We should be helpful people. We, we should put into use whatever gifts and strengths and abilities God has given us, and then we should also go beyond that and just serve out of humility one another in Christ. Our contrast scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. According to what Paul has just said, this is what I'm supposed to do. 
I love you guys. If you're not doing anything, get to work. That's what Paul says. I'm supposed to admonish the idol. It's, hey, if there's anyone in this room that isn't actively participating in the life of this family that God has put here, if you're just taking advantage and receiving all the goodness, that's what a consumer does, and we're not consumers, we're contributors. So if you are doing that, then God says, I'm supposed to admonish you, and you need to get busy. You can read Proverbs if you have any questions about that, and you will find probably hundreds of references to being idle and the problems that come when you're idle and not working. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now that you've come onto the other side of the line, stop stealing like you would have on the wrong side of the line. Instead, do honest work with your own hands. And the reason that we're supposed to do the honest work with our own hands is so that we have something to share with those who are in need. That's what it means to be helpful, according to Scripture. Number six, honest. We're going to cruise in here to a finish. Honest. I tell the truth about my struggles so that God's power may shine. I wrote a post about this also last week, how it has kind of come to our attention that there were those in our midst over the course of the last year. I'm not saying this in any kind of judgmental or condemning way, just saying this is a truth that we experienced, that over the course of the last year, we had several uh, struggles that came to light after the fact that people were struggling with the situation, and while they were going it, they kept it, you know, kind of concealed and hidden and, and under the carpet. And then after the struggle was gone, it started to come to light and be exposed. But that's not how it's supposed to work in the body of Christ. We're supposed to help one another in the struggle. We're not supposed to do this on our own strength. We're actually supposed to tap into the collective strength of the body of Christ to help us in these kinds of struggles. And that starts with honesty and transparency. And when we're hiding something, we're not telling the truth about what's really happening. Mark Twain says, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And Andre Guide says, it is better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you are not. It sounds like this. I'm not hiding behind a facade, putting on a show of having it all together. I tell the truth about my struggles so that I may receive the help of the body and God can be glorified. God can be glorified? Yes, God can be glorified. Let's get into that. Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new self. Get on the right side of the line and receive the new self that comes with the right side of the line, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the new self is supposed to be like, like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And we've talked about that a little bit over the years, that, that when we hide something, when we keep a sin and a struggle secret, that it actually still has more strength and power over us. But just the act of confessing it starts to rob that sin of its power in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about his own thorn in the flesh, whatever that is. And he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities and the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God can be glorified in the struggle because his power can be on display when we turn our lives over to him and we let him conquer the struggle in our lives by his resurrection power instead of trying to muster up the ability in our own strength to beat it. God doesn't, doesn't want us to try to beat it on our own because the Israelites spent a, you know, 1,500 years trying to beat things on their own and it didn't work. If we could beat things on our own, he would never have sent Jesus Christ to be a sacrifice for us. We cannot beat these things on our own strength and on our own power, but when we receive the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and we stand on the right side of the line, all of a sudden, when we're linked arm in arm with other believers who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the infinite power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to come against these things and beat them. But don't stand on your side of the line and try to do it on your own. That's not what it means to be the body of Christ. Key contrast scripture. You can go read this one for yourself later. It's kind of a fun one. <clears throat> now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And again, don't get focused on the money and on the fact that, well, it seems just sounds like God is greedy and he wanted all the money for himself. That's not the point at all. The point of this passage is that Ananias had the ability to say, I sold this piece of property and I'm going to give half of the money to the church. If he does that, I don't think he falls down dead. But because he wanted the attention, he wanted to be able to, to puff up his chest with pride and be able to claim that I sold a piece of property and I gave all the money to the church. Uh, why did you do that? Pride. It's hiding something, right? And, and pride is the root of all sin, I think, according to what I read in Scripture. So don't try to cover up things in your life. Let's be honest with one another. Tap into the real power. Number seven, ham. This is the one that was hard. 
spent hours looking on the thesaurus, thinking of every word I possibly could that even came close to it. And I just couldn't find one. So ham, you'll get it in a second. Harper's going to hate this because she, she feels about ham like I feel about onions, and it's going to become one of those words. And it's going to be one of the words that you remember because it's weird and it's ham. You know, I'll remember that. So uh, I am committed to Christ and the family and will not waver in my commitment. Key quote from uh, Matrina Navratilova. The difference between involvement and commitment is like ham and eggs. The chicken is involved, the pig is committed. <laughs> so I am ham. Wonder how our kosher friends would feel about that. I am ham. I am committed to Christ. It sounds like this. I am all in no matter the cost. I am a part of the new covenant, a two-party agreement. Because of this, I am a covenant member of this family. My commitment is not determined by feelings, popularity, or opinion. I am in through the thick and thin. That's commitment. Key support scriptures, there's a lot of them for this. If you do, if you do a search for commitment and start looking at that, it's essentially what the entire uh, New Testament is kind of built around is commitment to Christ. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, Matthew 6, 24. As much of a statement would be that you cannot serve both God and yourself. And that is what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about over the coming 14 weeks, is that our society spends a lot of time serving ourselves and we've turned the church into a commodity that we consume, and because it's a commodity that we consume, we just come and take what we want until we're not getting what we're wanting anymore, and we go find somewhere else that's giving us what we want. And that's an entire picture of the church right now in the Western Hemisphere, and that's something that is very not biblical. What God wants for us is covenantal community where we're all in, no matter how much it may cost us, no matter how we may have to sacrifice along the way. You cannot serve both God and yourself. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted, committed. Give preference to one another in honor. So we're not just supposed to be devoted to one another in an obligatory way. We're actually supposed to give preference to one another in an honorable way. Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Some key contrast scriptures. Luke 12. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God, but who, he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is at the very core of the gospel. 1 John chapter 2. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, 
but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 1 John 2. I'm not talking in that passage, and I'm not making a, a reference to anyone who has left our church. We're talking about people who have left the faith. We're talking about people, probably the, by the majority, who have given over to satisfying their own desires instead of serving God himself. So to be committed to say, I am him, literally means I have sacrificed myself. I have laid my life down. I have died to who I was so that Christ can bring me to life. And all of this is wrapped up in this, that we here at 6-8 Church want to be the kind of people who walk in love. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You'll see these words in bold. Just like with these seven statements where we hope you will say, I am. I am hungry, I am humble, I am honest, I am helpful, I am honorable, I am hopeful, I am ham, that we would say, I am patient. Love is patient, love is kind. I am patient, I am kind. Love does not envy, I do not envy. Love does not boast, it is not proud, I do not boast, I am not proud. Love does not dishonor others, I do not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking, I am not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered, I am not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs, I keep no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I do not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. Love never fails. I never fail at loving God and others. This is the way of love. Paul says the verse before this chapter, I will show you a better way. This is the better way.